IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Insurance Business's weekly global podcast, IB Talk. I'm Paul Lucas, the managing editor of Insurance Business, and this is actually our first recording of a new IB Talk since the US election result became official. I say official, I mean kind of official, because as we all know, the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, does not exactly trust the way the votes were counted. And no matter where you may sit on the political fence, it's fair to say that the issues of trust and transparency have really been more in the spotlight than they are right now. Uh, Reports of fake news have, ironically, become headline grabbers themselves. Uh, But what about the insurance sector? It seems it too has a trust problem, uh, but not so much related to fake news as customers who believe those contracts they sign are barely worth the paper they are written on when it comes time to make a claim, or who feel shortchanged by loyalty penalties as prices are, at least to them, unreasonably hiked while new customers are lured in with discount deals. It's a problem the sector needs to solve, and leading that charge is my guest today. She is the CEO of the Chartered Insurance Institute, uh, Sean Fisher. Sean, welcome to Ivy Talk. Thank you, Paul. Delighted to be here. Um, so, Sean, before we dive into all things trust and transparency, um, let's talk a little bit about your career and actually even before that, because I'm sure this will impress our international listeners in particular. You actually studied at Oxford's oldest college, uh, University College Oxford, uh, but you were actually studying law. Um, tell us about that experience. And uh, I, I guess it's one of the most famous and respected universities in the world. And of course, if you studied law, why insurance now? I mean, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. And I think like most experiences one has in life, you you tend to talk about the people that you met as much as anything. And and, uh, university college is uh, over 750 years old. Um, But I think right from the start, it's it's been uh, focused on trying to bring together people from lots of different backgrounds. Um, And that was what I absolutely loved. Um, and of course, you're all young and you're all enthusiastic and everybody wants to succeed. So you, you get this incredible energy. Um, and then Oxford University gives you this huge range of, 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 of options, not just the, the, what you're studying, but, you know, music and culture and sports. And, you know, it's just a fantastic environment for developing young, young people. It's, it's, uh, it, was, it was an amazing experience. Um, having said that, studying law itself was not um, necessarily as fantastic for me. Um, it's, uh, it's quite a, a, a dry topic. If I, it, it sounds weird to say that when you think how important it is, but it is quite dry to actually study it. Um, I'm fantastically grateful that I did, and I studied it at a college that has a really good reputation for it. And it certainly teaches you to uh, think in a disciplined way. But I, by the time I finished my degree, I was quite clear that law was not what I actually wanted to do as a, as a career. Uh, but what I did want to do, I, was, I really wanted to work in London um, and I really wanted to work in the city. Um, and there were really, at the time, there were three options. There was to work for law firms, which obviously I decided I didn't want to do. And then there was banking, um, which for a variety of reasons, I didn't, that didn't really attract me. And then obviously it wasn't so much insurance, it was, I suppose, the London market, Lloyd's and the London market. Um, And the idea that that was global, 
uh, but it covered so many different areas that were really interesting, you know, um, like, I don't know, fine arts and things like that, just really appealed to me. And uh, most importantly, that you didn't have to sit in an office all day. I, I, I at the time, ironically, given where we ended up, but uh, I had this horror of kind of having to sit down all day. And of course, a, a sort of trading environment like like Lloyd's was was sort of perfect for that because you could, you know, get up and get out and meet lots of people. Um, so yeah, just, I I loved it. Just just taking a step back for a moment, I, I'm just wondering when you were at Oxford. Is that quite pressured because i mean you know it's it's got such a reputation hasn't it? everybody thinks of oxford and cambridge two of the most famous universities in the world um is that sort of place pressure on you as someone studying there to succeed in life um it's it's rigorous i think that's uh, i mean it's academically rigorous so obviously if you're not going to enjoy that kind of environment it can be quite tough but what i found was that they uh you know some of the, uh, the, the teaching that i had there was some of the best that I've experienced. And they, they have this system whereby you're in small study groups, I suppose you, you would call them, which means that you, you can discuss things quite, quite a lot with your peer group and you get a lot of support um, because you're all working on similar things at the same time. So you share your learning, your information. And then they have a tutorial system rather than a lecture theatre. So you're not sat, you know, you're not sat in a lecture theatre with 150 other people. You know, you're you actually get to meet with your tutor pretty much on a, you know, a, well, it's usually a, a, a two people, but you get to meet on a fairly personal basis and go through what you're learning. So although yes, it is, it's extremely academically rigorous. The support structure around it has been around for a long time, and they've. That, you know is 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 quite effective yeah so so let's jump into your insurance career then because uh, you started out at, at marsh initially and then you went on to have um, 17 years i believe with with hiscox in a, in a host of different positions can you sort of talk us through that sort of first period of your career yes yeah, certainly i mean i i i just if you just put my career in a bit of context i always laugh and say i've been very lucky because in many ways i've had say four you know four different careers and and possibly this last one you know is an, is another is another career again so i haven't haven't had quite the same sort of linear corporate career that quite a lot of people have had um and i i spent my 20s and my 30s uh, i i would say learning my craft i think that's the best way to put it and as you say i i did start out actually on the graduate program at marsh but I, I was only there for a few years and uh, I was offered the opportunity to switch sides, if you like. Not not because I didn't enjoy broking, because I did. I actually loved it. Um, but I was offered a, an opportunity to join Hiscox and train as a Lloyd's underwriter. And that really appealed to me, particularly as I got to use my law, because just by luck, really, the one of the areas that Hiscox did specialise in was professional indemnity. And obviously that links directly back to having done a, a law degree and studied negligence. So, you know, I did actually get to use my law in the end, even even though I, I didn't want to practice. Um, and so, you know, I very much did a classic technical period during my 20s. And I also did my professional qualifications with the CII. So that was my first experience of the CII. Um, but what I realized quite quickly was that although there was a, you know, there's a te- there's a technical aspect to working uh, as a young person, there's also the business, you know, the business of, of business. 
And so I suppose in my 30s, what I realized was that if you could uh, actually be in charge of an area of business, and particularly a profitable one, obviously, and you could then add to that your willingness to manage people and also actually manage a P&L and take, you know, put your head over the parapet that you could actually make money for the company, that that was obviously from a career perspective was a really good thing to do. Um, and I realise now how incredibly fortunate I was to be at Hiscox at the time I was, uh, because Hiscox was sort of transiting from being a, a you know pretty pretty well established but quite old fashioned Lloyd Syndicate into being this sort of very go ahead dynamic sort of international insurance business, um, and a lot of that was was driven by Robert Hiscox himself, but also Bronick joined just before or sorry just after I did. Um, and obviously he took the business forward in a, you know, quite a, a, a dynamic way. Um, and because I was young and I was enthusiastic and um, I had some good ideas, I benefited from his clock supporting me and those ideas. So when they then, and, and I was also lucky that they decided to buy an insurance company and it was quite small and quite challenged, I think is probably the right word at the time. So they gave me the opportunity to actually become the first managing director of that of that business so you know that was an incredible opportunity to be given sort of in your late 30s actually to effectively run your own business. Yeah, tell us a little bit uh, about what it was like to to start um, Oxygen um, obviously you know with such a well-established career and in a variety of roles 17 years at Hiscox under your belt did it feel like a little bit of a risk to move into a role like that? Uh, yeah you could say that um, so what happened was I, I, I went, I actually went at the end of my thirties, I, I went to, I was very fortunate. I was offered the opportunity to uh, do an exec MBA at uh, Harvard. And while I was there, I uh, was offered the opportunity to join Nigel Barton, who was, had, had, had this idea for um, a, a broker stroke MGA business. And uh, it was at the time that was not something that a lot of people did. It was quite a new idea. Um, and there were literally, there were four of us at the beginning and, and it was Nigel's idea, but he needed support from us to run various parts of the business. So we, there, there were, as I say, there were four of us got together at, at the beginning and started this thing with our own money. And, uh, and, you know, on the first day we launched at the end of 2004, and kind of found ourselves uh, in a room, all of us looking at each other because none of us were sure, uh, you know, how to do the post or any anything because we'd all worked for corporates before where all these things were really organised. And uh, so I remember spending my first morning, first of all, going out to buy a fridge and then secondly, you know, uh, crawling around under the table trying to work out how to plug all of our computers in. So it was a, it was a, it's um going from a corporate to running your or a flat start um, entrepreneurial business is, is quite a difference. And it's, uh, it's quite scary because what you're doing, you put your own money in, obviously, at the beginning. And essentially, every day you come in and you watch the, uh, you watch the um, what might you say, the, the petrol gauge, you watch it going down because your money is gradually being spent. Um, and until you've actually got some revenue, obviously it, it's it's all downhill until until you start to top the tank back up with with business. And uh, when you know when you've worked really hard to uh, 
produce some savings or whatever, and then you put it into an entrepreneurial business. That's a, you know, that's quite a, a lesson in real life, as they say. Absolutely. And, and of course, the, the oxygen business was eventually um, sold to, to Gallagher and, and you had roles there and uh, with, with Astra yeah. underwriting. Um, and, and you moved into the position as well of, of CEO of the CEI, uh, CII excuse me, in, in February 2016. Um, so just for our international listeners who, who may be less aware of the CII, uh, can you give us a little bit of background on, on what it is and what it does? Because it's got a really unique place in the industry, hasn't it? Yes, um, so the, the, uh, there's a rather strange um, set of organisations in this country called Chartered Professional Bodies, um, and they're not-for-profit uh, organisations that provide the education and um, behavioural framework behind the professions in this country. And just by history, obviously, quite a number of them have also expanded out internationally. Um and we all have we all have royal charters, and those charters are all about the relationship of our profession with society. So what they do is task us as the professional body with uh, built, effectively building confidence and trust between the the profession itself and the uh, the wider public between with with society. Now, obviously, no. Uh, organization can do that itself the idea of a professional body is to we, we I suppose the elevator pitch is more member professionals to serve the public is really what professional bodies are there to do and that has three aspects really one is qualification learning and qualification uh, studying and, and learning your 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 craft as it were and then second and most important all charter bodies actually have a published code of ethics and when you become a member of a professional body you you personally sign up to your commit your public commitment to that code of ethics uh, and then the last piece actually all professions have this concept of giving back to society so again when you join a professional body you're you're actually accepting that you're entering into some sort of relationship with with society more widely than just your own personal gain um, and I suppose those three elements really are the concept of all professionals whether that's doctors or engineers or or you know insurance professionals and it's the obvious question Sean but when you became CEO I think it's fair to say there were not too many female CEOs in the insurance sector um, was it daunting to take on a challenge uh, especially as a woman, uh, perhaps it even helped you in the role. I don't know. Can you just tell us from that perspective? Yes, it's it's a, it's it's a, it, uh, it's always a, an interesting thing to talk about because I've I've almost become more aware of my gender as I've got older. <laughs> That's a funny thing to say, but um, I grew up in a family that was very was pretty egalitarian. So my mother worked. My father was, you know, not a classic kind of. Um, father treating my brother and myself pretty much the same then I went to, I went to a comprehensive in the West Midlands so I went to a pretty egalitarian uh, initial education where frankly I, I wasn't really didn't ever really think that I was any different in terms of my capability or my intellect and then I went to university which again is an academic route and generally you're treat you know in, in academia you're treated on the basis of your 
achievement. They're quite meritocratic in that in that sense. Um, so coming into the sector, I suppose I had no anticipation that I would be treated any differently and that I would succeed or fail on my own merits. And I take my hat off to both the graduate programme at Marsh, which was actually quite uh, equal, was quite well run. Um, and then Hiscox, I take my hat off there that they that Robert Foote, or he, he had quite a strong personality. He was essentially a meritocrat. And, um, and, and Bronick absolutely is. And so I was very lucky that I ended up actually working for some people who, you know, who did who didn't make a big deal about my gender and actually were interested in supporting my development as a successful business person. Um, I have to say, subsequent to um, his cox, I've realised, I suppose I just got more exposure to what entrepreneurial business is like, uh, what what it's like to uh, have to build a business and um, batter about a bit, I suppose, in the market. And then I was more conscious that there can be issues with with gender. Um, but when I took the role at the CII, again, I mean, you know, the CII is a very egalitarian organisation, uh, regards, you know, equity and equality incredibly um, highly. So it's, you know, it's not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I maybe not fully exposed again to what what you know some some ladies have faced in the, in the market, and and frankly, I I try not to give it too much thought. I give it a lot of thought in terms of how I can help other people develop, but in terms of myself, I I try not to focus on you know any any negativity in in that way because I do actually feel I've been incredibly fortunate in my career in insurance and. I've been supported by some, you know, really fantastic people over the years. So, you know, I know some people have had really terrible experiences and my heart goes out to them. Um, but, you know, from my own personal experience, I, I've, I've worked with some you know, very decent and supportive people. Well, let's um, let's switch focus and, and, and talk about trust, Sean, because um, it's a real focal point isn't it for the, for the CII um i know for example you have your insuring futures uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that yes well you know when i arrived at the CII you know a big part of a ceo's role is is really to get at what the purpose of the organisation is and then to flip that round to back to the people in the organisation you know as a bit of a quest or i, I call it the why um, and because it's it's very easy for organisations to be so busy doing what they do that they actually lose sight of of, of the why. Um, and as I said, actually, the CII is highly privileged in this sense in that we've got a royal charter on the wall that actually tells us the why, i.e., you know, building confidence and trust in our profession. But that's such a such a challenge, and it's such a high level uh, commitment. How do you turn that into a story? Um, and so what I did when I arrived, uh, I, I mean, I pay full credit to my colleagues. They were already working on this stuff, but they probably hadn't presented it as a story, I suppose, um, or a quest. I mean, as we all know, the, you know, the most effective form of story that everybody loves is a kind of a quest type story. So what I did was say all these pieces of work we're doing, trying to help uh, people get the best from our profession what is that really about? And that's where we came up with this sort of umbrella 
idea of insuring futures, i.e. what we're trying to do is look out into society and find places where our profession could actually work, be working a lot better for sections of society. Um, and interestingly, the first piece of research we did, I, I bumped into really the fact that we had a major issue for uh, women's you know, financial position and women's engagement with using both insurance and financial products to uh, assist, the, the, first of all, the risks in life, but also to build up financial resilience for the end of life, because we all know that women live longer than men. But when we started looking at the research, it was very clear that women's financial position it is at the end of life is significantly worse than men. So this this sort of looked like a, a really good area. So we did the research, but I said, right, but the thing with trust is you're not going to build trust by just identifying the problem and then moving on. The issue is what are we going to do about it? So for the first time, really, I've been involved with a, a sort of campaigning piece of work, if you like, where we brought the whole market together uh, to actually come up with a series of uh, we had a market task force and we came up with a series of recommendations which we're now working with government and uh, the third sector to actually get some real action to improve the situation for women um, but most importantly we came up with two pledges for the market uh, one about our own workforce and how we can make flexible working work a lot more fairly and then secondly which links very closely to the trust issue of how can the insurance market generally look at look at its customers in a much more rigorous and holistic sense so that rather than just trying to sell them product we're actually looking at them in their life experience their life journey and saying how can we help them make the best decisions they could make about our products and services so that they get the best outcome for themselves, as opposed to just buying lots of product and then potentially not getting uh, the best outcome that, that they could get. Um, so that, you know, that's that's sort of linked to uh, this issue of trust. But then what I realized was it's all very well having actions going on all over the place. Um, but you also have, you know, difficult things going on or bad things going on at the same time. So how do you actually measure the whole thing holistically and reflect back to the sector what is in you know, what's working to improve trust but at the same time what are we doing overall that might be undermining trust and that's where we came up with the concept of the trust index um, so since 2018 we've actually been working with we don't do this ourselves we work with the institute of customer service who have expert ability to uh, engage with real consumers and get the the to, and ask rigorous questions which get back for you some real pointers as to what consumers really care about and what the index comes down to is basically six indicators in relation to people who have just bought and are holding an insurance product and then three really important indicators in relation to people who are either are actually having claims or have had a claim and what you know what did they think was really important about the claims experience 
and we do this survey we do this survey three times a year um, and in fact we've just done one um, to try and look specifically at SMEs who are holding commercial uh, package insurance and in particular how are people who are holding business interruption feeling uh, given all the controversy that's obviously currently surrounding that. So Sean I, I wouldn't expect you to go through the whole trust index with us but can you give us some insight into the the primary areas of concern that customers have, um, the reasons why they're not trusting insurance companies, and indeed uh, what we can do to address those issues? Yes, uh, thank you, Paul. the The way that the index works, it's not a it's not like a, a percentage or a, a number. Uh, what we do is we uh, we work in conjunction with the Institute of Customer Service, so we don't do this ourselves. We use a, a very experienced external body and what they do is they ask real consumers lots of questions um, and they get back the, the language that the consumer would use to describe how they basically how they feel uh, and what we what we try to do is we we get a cross-section group so some people who are purely buying and holding an insurance product and have had no experience of having a claim, and then uh, groups that do that have had a claim. And basically, what what that does is we it consolidates down into sort of six measures for buying and holding things which consumers actually feel are really important, and then three measures for claims. Um, and and we consolidate those using words like you know respect, loyalty. Uh, speed, you know, the words that actually a consumer would use rather than an insurance person. And then what we do is we do this three times a year and we replace the oldest set of, of responses with the newest set of responses so that we should be getting quite a smooth uh, result. Um, we've just done one following COVID and actually that's very interesting because SMEs up until now, their satisfaction level had actually been quite constant um, but not surprisingly, actually, it's dropped post-COVID. Um, and then within the SMEs overall, those who've got uh, business interruption, their, their level has dropped quite meaningfully. Um, so what, what, what we try then to do is extract from the statements the things that people can actually do about it. Um, and what we've identified post-COVID is that three things are really important to consumers. Uh, speed. So, uh, and what they mean by that is I'm offered immediate assistance and advice. So particularly for brokers, I think that's really important that there's a, a very strong response rate to people's concerns. Uh, respect is the second one. You know, the, 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 the people I'm dealing with show compassion for my situation and also that they use language that I can understand and that they communicate with me. Because as you know, if there's problems, people tend to start using very legal language and also they avoid having conversations and that's the exact sort of reverse of what consumers are really looking for um, and then the last thing is is they want their confidence uh, built that just because they've got a problem now and they're having a claim now that that isn't going to majorly impact their future relationship with their insurer um, and I think obviously for brokers that's you know that's a really important point because you know, insurance, like everything else, there's sometimes, you know, there, there are sometimes very difficult market conditions. 
and and if you like there's bad news to um to get across as well as good news in in other in other years um but it's the way you do it and i think what this these points speed respect and confidence is showing is that you know intermediaries like like brokers you know can can actually make a a, a huge difference to the way that consumers feel uh, e- even if you know the situation that they're in is 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 actually quite complicated yeah that brings me quite neatly to, to to my next question sean because i was going to ask you about the role that brokers can play i mean is there any sort of practical advice that that you could suggest uh for brokers in terms of you know how they can help to sort of bolster the reputation of the industry because theoretically they could play a huge role couldn't they as trusted yeah. advisors um they can persuade consumers to to come to them and and and, and go from there to sort of ensure a better customer ex- customer experience overall i think one of the one of the key things that's come out of of the trust index work that we've done but also actually the purposes roundtable that we did uh to assist the fca and um, what came out very clearly is that one of the things brokers could really do is use the the risk the risk knowledge that we have so much of in the sector uh, to actually help their clients more widely. So not just to be using their ins- their conversation to talk about insurance products and if you like the renewal of existing policies, but actually to talk more widely with the the, the clients about their whole risk uh, scenario. And also, frankly, to be honest with the the, uh, the insured about where private insurance works really well to help them manage their risk and where actually other risk prevention measures that they could potentially take themselves would probably be more effective than, than actually any particular insurance product. And we also know that there are quite a number of areas where actually insurance products don't really exist. So things like intellectual property and stuff like that there are there are very minor products around but not they they can't cover the whole of what insureds are faced with but brokers often have a lot of knowledge of other things and other ways in which uh, clients can address address you know these areas and we really do need to turn our conversations around with our customers to you know to share our knowledge and and to to make the conversation feel more like a, a, a an advice partner rather than a sales transaction. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really great advice. Um, before we wrap up, Sean, um, I, I think in these strange COVID circumstances we're all living through, a, a lot of us are actually discovering um, the beauty on our own doorsteps a little bit more and, and getting out into nature. And I believe that you're uh, quite a big nature lover yourself. Yes, I mean, this rather surprised me because I certainly wasn't um, earlier in my life. I mean, I've always lived in, uh, I, I grew up in a village, but I couldn't wait to get away, frankly. And I always wanted to live in London and, and I've spent most of my early life in cities one way or another. Um, and then I, I, I accidentally went on a, a trip to Africa, which I thought was more of a, a sort of history and culture trip. And it ended up actually having quite a big air, a big safari part to it. And I was so amazed that of seeing animals in their own environment and seeing, you know, other parts of the world in in a, as a wilderness, really, that I was just completely struck by it. And uh, so I've, I've then spent the last 15 years probably 
going to you know all the more extreme parts of the world like the antarctic or you know the the deserts or or you know i went up kilimanjaro you know all these sort of things um because just to sort of see really the scope of, of what the world's wild places look like and also the wildlife that lives there that's incredible. Uh, does does the UK um, have any sort of nature that can compete with 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 that level? Well, I think that's the that's the interesting thing about COVID. If you said to me, "Did I?" I, I mean, I know this is going to sound really stupid, but if you said to me, "Did I realise that I don't know flowers came out at different times, and that you know, say you know, things follow on from each other, and also if you sit in the garden in in the UK, there's all you know, there's all this fantastic." bird song I know everyone's saying that this year but I really have been struck by it because you know I, I've never had I haven't had a, a garden myself really but my parents obviously have a garden and I was with my parents during lockdown and the first lockdown and um, I was just amazed that there's all this you know extraordinary stuff going on right on your you know on your doorstep and and butterflies I mean I, I'm sounding really sad now I know but I had actually never realized that really that butterflies you know have pairs and that they have their own territory <laughs> and these little things you know are really quite impactful when they're in a in a nature space so yes uh, I, I you know I, I I would have thought more of that, that I had interest in you know gorillas or polar bears or whatever but um I have to say this this summer I I found it it translates equally to the UK well, you know, if if you are missing the the well, not the, not the gorillas and the polar bears, but maybe the elephants and the giraffes, you know, n there is always Nosley Safari Park, Sean. Um, okay, thank you. I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 as soon as I can, I shall be there. <laughs> I've, I've promoted them for free. I should say other safari parks are available. Um, Sean, if people want to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, um, how can they get in touch? So I, I have obviously I have my um, my LinkedIn page. I think I think we all do these days. But uh, I have one that obviously does also have lots of stuff on it uh, uh, relative to the CII itself, at, but but to me as well. Um, and then please, my my email address is sean.fisher at cii.co.uk, and you can come to me at any time. Sean, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back next week. I've been Paul Lucas, and this is IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.